Yeah, 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 yeah. Internet, y'all ready? Internet, so y'all ready? Yo! Can I get a yo? First and foremost, everybody, welcome to the Highline Ballroom. And welcome to the celebration of Chris Lighty's life. And welcome to Mogul Live. Now, I gotta be transparent with y'all. I'm fucking nervous as fuck. I'm nervous as fuck because I'm looking at y'all and I've never done anything like this with all this production and the whole night, but let's get into it. Um, we got a, an amazing, amazing, amazing event planned for y'all tonight. Like I said, this is a celebration of the one and only Chris Lighty. Chris Lighty changed all of our lives. Some of us are very aware of that. Some of us don't even know because we take a lot of this shit for granted. You know what I'm saying? He was such a pioneer from day one in this hip hop thing. Um, and that's why we're all here. So I want to welcome to the stage somebody that is also legendary, um, was also a very you know, early pioneer in this thing, and really had the opportunity not to just be a, a peer of Lighty and, and somebody that loved the music and the culture, but somebody that was really fortunate and talented and capable, capable enough to build this thing into a, a business, a multi-billion dollar business. So let's welcome to the stage. And I got to say this, this next person on the stage, um, like we, I think we take him for granted because we don't realize like there were never any hip hop A&Rs, but the guy that's coming on the stage right now was the very first person to ever be hired to be a hip hop A&R. So without further ado, let's welcome to the stage, Mr. Dante Ross. We have to take this rap shit serious. Slap the taste out of your mouth and break out. Yeah. the back up off the wall. What? I said dance. Come on, come on. Put your hands up. Stop fronting and pop something. Come on, boy, nigga, stay fronting. Ain't got nothing. Mad to the life I lead. Twice your speed. Brown skin, mommy, that's the wife I need. Like that weed. Your mic works, man? That's not all for one? That wasn't all I know, for one. all for one, Brand Newbie was supposed to be the intro song. Yeah, yeah, what happened? But you know, this is, this is, this is, this is live entertainment. Yo, Dante. Your cue. Yo, you look good, man. Thank you. What the fuck you doing? Eating good. Eating good? Taking no. care of yourself? Yo, listen, let me ask you something, man. Like, we, we shared a lot of conversations, and you're one of those cats growing up in the Lower East Side that was really tapped into, like, the punk rock movement in the early days of the BC Boys and the whole nine. And I remember growing up in New York City, you really couldn't separate the energy between hip hop and punk rock. So I just shared my first hip hop experience. What was your first hip hop experience, man? Um, my man, Jackie Van Horn, whose real name was Columbus. And if you called him Columbus, he'd slap you in the head. Um, he gave me a tape and it was a Grandmaster Flash tape. And he was like, this is the real shit. And um, it was 52 Beats, and later on, Kid Capri made a 52 Beats tape, uh, homage to that. And that was the tape, and I dubbed it, and that was, that was really when I got into it. You know, and, and um, I just stayed it tuned into it, you know, it was like, it kind of went away, you know, we thought it might be a fad, we didn't know what was going to happen, and, and then Run DMC came out, and that was, you know, when they dropped, that was, it was all over. And that was when everything changed, that's when he knew it was for real, it was going to last. So, how did you make that transition from being a fan of the culture, you know, being somebody that appreciated it and the energy and it gave you so much, like, how did you make that switch into the business side? So, so you know, I grew up with the Beasties and uh, I knew Russell and Leora when I was a wild little kid in high school. We were skateboarding around, me and MCA, and, and I saw them get their foot in the door and, and I couldn't rap for, for, for shit, so 
Um, I figured I had to do something. I saw I saw Russell, and I thought he was he was living pretty good, and Rick too. And I was like Rick Rubin, and I was like, well, I can't rap. I got to do something. I'm waiting tables, and that's bullshit. So um, I went on tour with the Beasties, and and their road manager adopted me. This guy Sean Karazov, who ended up signing Tribe Called Quest, who passed away. Uh, Captain Pissy and and Pissy adopted me and got me a job working for Russell and them and you know I started out as a guy who was just like running around getting in trouble with those guys and and they managed to give me a job and I was the office messenger and and uh, I got yelled at by Leor every day uh, he, he told me I fucked his Chinese food up hey, can you give us your best Leor uh, impression I said shrimp fried rice not pork fried rice you idiot <laughs> and uh, I should have known that because he eats kosher so. Um, so, so <laughs> I would, uh, I got abused by Leor for a couple of years and, and I ended up getting an A&R job at Tommy Boy Records. And, uh, from there I just signed a lot of groups and, and I still do it today. So, you know, the, the music was, the music was brand new and the industry was brand new. Did y'all know what y'all were doing? No, we made it up as we went along. Just like the music. I mean, when you listen to it, I mean, I mean, even listen to the early Run DMC shit, how raw it is. There's no music to it. It's just drums and like a scratch. You know, so I think we're rewriting the rules. And I think that's why, like, kids like me and the Beastie Boys, like, who grew up exposed to punk rock and, and all this downtown shit, that's, that's what grabbed us. It had the same raw energy. It wasn't contrived. You know, because we couldn't fuck with Bon Jovi and all that shit. So, you know, we were running. Like Michael Jackson? Uh, Michael Jackson was ill. Can't front on Michael Jackson. No one could ever front on him. Um, so, you know, it was just like, it appealed to us. It, it spoke to us in volumes. It sounded aggressive, and, and it was just our theme. And that, that's what we got into. That's what we listened to, and we just rocked it. Because before that, like, we were into African Bambada, and we used to all break dance and all that, but, but it got a little corny, and they, they looked like broke Rick James up there. You know, it was like, <laughs> they had like a, a, a big, they looked like the Israelites or something. And, and, and it just, it, you know, respect the BAM and all that, but it, was, it wasn't appealing to us the way that when we saw Run DMC, they look like the thugged out guys on the block. You were like, oh, that guy, he, you know, I, I respect that. So, you know, we really identified with it, the, the culture of it, the way they looked, the music and everything it embodied. You know, we were like doing our fat laces, cleaning our, our shoes with our toothbrushes and wearing a mock neck and all that. You know, I had the name, buckle belt, all that corny stuff. So, you know, when, you know, the, the late 80s was an amazing time for music. Like, you had It was explosion. dangerous in New York, too. And, it was, and, no, and, and, and that was part of it. The music was dangerous, and so was the, the city itself. Like, yeah, because I would sneak out and risk getting my ass beat by my parents. But at the same time, when I was at the park jams, I was risking myself getting shot, stabbed in the home. Because it was a dangerous... It was a cauldron. I mean, a block away from where was the Roxy. And, and, like, you know, I remember the first time I went to the Roxy, I, I was like, what the fuck is that smell? Someone's like, that's angel dust. And... You know, it was just, you know, I mean, LL was performing. Literally, he went, bent down, like, on stage, and dude stole his rope from the chain. That's crazy. That's what Biggie's talking about in that song. I've been robbing cats since LL. You know, he's talking about the Roxy. Yo, that's crazy. He robbed his chain. So shit was real. It was very dangerous. It wasn't, it wasn't sweet. And, and that was exciting to us. We liked that. So I'm, I'm going back to the late 80s when, like, the industry just started churning out these amazing classic albums, like Eric B. and Rakim, um, EPMD, LL, sampling uh, Public era. Enemy, you know what I'm saying? And then I found this one special cassette, you know, straight out the jungle, mm. the Jungle Brothers. Mm. And I got locked into that because that was such a unique album. That was a game changer. Game changer. But I remember one of the things about that album, when we used to read credits, you know, you would see Chris Lighty's name. Baby right? Chris. Because we read, we, we read 
credits and you would hear about this baby Chris. And at the same time, to me, the hottest group of all time at that time was motherfucking BDP, Boogie Down Productions, and Carry Us One. So I remember looking at certain videos and like, yo, because we would study those things. We didn't have the internet. Video music box. Video music box. And, and yo, I don't even know if it was on MTV Raps at the time. Nah, it wasn't. But I remember seeing this dude like in a couple of videos and I was like, yo, is he BDP? Is he Jungle Brothers? So that was like my first introduction to baby Chris. Chris Lighty, what was your first introduction to so Chris Lighty? I, so I knew who he was and I knew about the Violators because I used to go to Latin Quarter. Before that, I used to actually go to Union Square, which was Bananas. And so you'd hear about what, the... What do, you mean, what do you mean by Bananas? I mean, oh, was, we got the Violators in I mean, it was a violent place, man, you know, and it was, it was something was always ha happening, like... And who was usually in the middle of that shit? I mean, Clark Kent was a DJ. He's my man since high school, and, and it was always Brooklyn against Uptown. Brooklyn versus, versus basically the, the Violators, more or less. And, and I would always, you know, you, you'd hear violators in the house or whatever, and, you know, it just would happen. Shit was wild. And so I knew who Chris was before I knew him because he knew about the violators. And actually, I seen Daryl here. I think he's the first, first cat I met. I, I thought him and Chris were biological brothers. I didn't know. Well, they, I, they resemble. They, yeah, maybe. I, I think someone was like, yeah, we're brothers. I was like, okay. And, and did, you, did you actually see them doing damage? Mm, from afar. I like to be way in the back when that <laughs> happened. Uh, you know, I, I, was, I was lucky. Red Alert let me hang out in the booth. I was upstairs at the quarters, so um, I wasn't a pedestrian. And, and also, I had nothing to steal, so w what were people going to take from me? <laughs> I got a shoelace. I didn't have any money, so um, I was hanging out with MC Search a lot. And, and I knew who Chris was, and, and things progressed a little bit. And uh, I remember we had this meeting with, with BDP when I worked for, for Russell and Lior at Rush. We were trying to manage them with Eric, Eric B. set the meeting up. And uh, Chris was there, and Karis one totally, uh, totally rubbed us. He was not feeling us at all. Why? Because um, he said he was, he was deaf without the jam. And he, he didn't need to be down with Rush. Shots. He took shots straight up. And Scott was there, Scott LaRock, and he was just, he was very poised. And they just, it wasn't going down. But Chris was there, and, and he was the politician. He was playing the back. But, but him and D-Nice were like, the, we, I don't know, they were a little friendlier. Um, and uh, that's, I remember we left and we were talking about how it wasn't going to happen and, and uh, Lior wanted to know who Chris was. He said, but who was that kid? Why did he want to know who Chris he had, was? He had a million dollar smile. I think that was the real reason. Um, and he was affable. So, so I remember like, you know, things progressing. For some reason, me and Chris didn't, we didn't really like each other. I can't even remember why. Like, how did you know that y'all didn't like each other? We just, we like game faced each other a lot. It was just like funny vibes and and one night he came up to me at i want to say it was the building but it could have been like amazon he was like i heard you i heard you don't like me and i was like i don't <laughs> and and i thought he was gonna kick my ass and uh d nice was there he's like yo y'all are bugging y'all are bugging chill did, did it did it did it ramp up to that point where i mean he just you know he saw i was gonna get a beating so so he interceded um and uh we're leaving the club so we were like, whatever, yeah, yeah, forget that. And I was leaving the club, and D-Nice had a, I want to say, Acura Legend, and he was, or a Maxima, whatever the cool car was. And he was outside, and Chris was in the car with them. And he was like, yo, what are y'all doing? Uh, what are you doing? I said, nothing. He said, we're going to go eat. We went to Chelsea, Chelsea Square on 23rd Street, and we ate and talked shit to like 5.30 in the morning. And, and Chris told me he, he had never met a white boy who talked to him like the way I did before. And, and I told him to get used to it. And he's going to go work with Lior. He's going to hear it way worse. So, um, 
and, and we became friends. You know, that was like, you know, I, I guess I had to earn his respect and, and on some level vice versa. And uh, wow, Chris ended up managing damn near every band I signed to Electra, And, and I, I had a lot of history with him. I worked with him all the time. What was that? Name some of those bands. So he managed um, Leaders of the New School. He, he managed Brand Nubian for a minute with Lior. That was kind of a fail because Brand Nubian was unmanageable. Um, Shout out to Grand Pooba. Leaders of the New School, definitely. Um, I'm trying to think who else he managed, who I worked with. He didn't manage KMD. So, so mostly Leaders of the New School and, and Brand Nubian. Yeah, definitely Brand Nubian, actually. Because he managed them twice, as a matter of fact. He managed them with Pooba, and they fired him and hired him again. So, so those are the two main groups he managed. And he had worked with Daylaw for a minute prior. So, and Leaders of the New School were a full-time occupation. So, so I talked to him constantly about Leaders of the New School. And what were you all talk about? Uh, how crazy and annoying they could be, mostly. And, and also how great they were, how brilliant they were. And he engineered the tour that was their first big tour. It was Tribe... Uh, De La, Leaders, and KMD, and he put the whole tour together. And in the making of that tour, we talked like every day. Um, and we had the unpleasant experience of making the second Leaders record. And, and, and basically, me and him combined, convinced Buster at one point to become a solo artist. So, so he walked the trials and tribulations of the Leaders of New School's second record. And, and after, after the first record, they were purged to, to be big. And then everything got crazy after Scenario, right? Buster clearly was looking like a star. And the, the band delivered the second record, and I had to send them back in with Chris's help to, to fix the record. And, and the second time, it got marginally better, but, but I didn't feel it was the record that was going to take them to the next level. I didn't think they were going to be massively successful. And... Um, we put the record out knowing that, that the future was probably Buster Rhymes going solo. And me and Chris, uh, you could say, conspired to convince him to become a solo artist. And then we made the Buster records. Now, you got some stories. I want, I want to particularly focus on two stories. One of the stories is a story with Buster and Chris. Yo, Rob, you got something to play to that? Quote from Shakespeare and other types of rhymes to show you that I care. But things like together forever to you, you're my only one. Only it one. was special, I could say it was a loving one. You would say someone's knocking at my window. Knock, knock. Someone's ringing my bell. Ding dong. It's about two in the morning. Hey, yo, geez, what the hell's going on? It's just, just another case of that OPT. Hey, so what's your Buster Chris Lighty story? So, so there's a couple of them. But um, the, the main one was, so Buster and Tip were very close. So when they made the, yeah, so when they made the first record, I mean the second record when they made it the first time, I had the idea of why don't we have Q-Tip just do the whole record? Let's have him come in and fix the whole record. And and Chris was like that's a great idea. Let me talk to Tip and Tip was down. So we put a meeting together to try and make this happen and three out of four of the leaders were dead set against it. Um and Buster was the one guy who was like, I'm with it. And uh, the leaders were accusing the tr tribe of uh, plagiarizing the East Coast stomp, their dance, and, and various other things. And, and Buster came to us on the side and was like, yo, I think it's an ill idea. We should do it. I'm going to try and get them to do it. And it never happened. And I always wonder that if Tiff had produced that record and put it together, if their second record would have been a home run and they would have remained a group. 
So, so that was the beginning of the story I told earlier where we realized right then and there that Buster was not only probably the most talented, but the smartest. He was the one who realized that if I do this over here with the guy who made my biggest record scenario, I have the opportunity to be a, a bigger star. And, and that's where the seed was planted for a solo record. And I got to tell you that every time we'd have a leader's record or, or a meeting, me and Chris would always say, when do we get the Buster solo record? You know, we'd always take them aside and constantly try and get that to happen. And uh, in the midst of this, we got Buster the part in the movie Higher Learning. So my friend's mother, Dolores Robinson, she managed John Singleton, and she's a casting director too. And she called me up and asked me if I had any rappers who, who could act. And I lied and said, Buster's a great actor. <laughs> um, and I called Chris, and Chris got him the, you know, Chris walked, him, walked the walk with him, and he tested for the movie and got the movie. So while he was shooting the movie, leaders bombarded my office and, and told me they knew that we were conspiring to get Buster to go solo. And uh, we, it was a big fiasco, and I had Chris on the phone. It was, it was chaos. And Buster, actually, that was the day that he decided he was quitting the group. Uh, the wake of, of that and, and just the animosity with him doing a movie. And uh, Chris told him it was the right idea. And the rest is history. That's crazy. You know, before we, we jump to our next guest, you got this one more interesting story. One of the most interesting characters, one of the most individuals, one of the most creative, creative people that's ever been in the music industry. I want to hear about the late, great, old, dirty bastard, and so, Chris Lighty. So Dave Lighty, who's upstairs, is a prominent figure in this story. So, so, so uh, Dirty was a handful, and he used to go to Tunnel Lot, which is Chris's club. And, and I'll tell another story about Chris, too. So um, he would drive Chris fucking crazy. And he, he was a real fucking knucklehead. And I love him, rest in peace. But, but he was a handful, and then some. And uh, he would go and just go crazy a tunnel, and Chris would always want to kick him out, and... And they just had a long-standing problem. So Chris hit me up to get LL, to get a dirty verse for LL's record. Um, and, and dirty was hot as a pistol. So I worked the deal out for it to happen. And, and I believe dirty got his money up front, at least half of it. And, and he came to the studio all late. Chung King it was the old Chung King that had like rats running around. It was a, <laughs> it was a shithole. Um, and we still worked there. It was great. So, so, uh, Chris and Dave show up when Dirty's supposed to do the verse, and, and Dirty's in the studio just throwing fucking craze, and, and he's beefing because LL doesn't show up. He's like, LL wants a verse from the God, but he can't hang out with the God. Like, and he's, he might not want to hang out with the God. I mean, you know, it's probably a wise move on LL's part. And uh, I'm going to say that angel dust and alcohol may have been involved. I, I, can't, I can't confirm it. Allegedly. Allegedly. I don't want to speak bad about the dead. Um, he, he was with Crazy Sam. I don't know if you guys know who Crazy Sam was. Yes, Crazy Sam. So Crazy Sam used to be on Video Music Box. And uh, he was also someone on Chris Lighty's shit list. For, for obvious reasons, if you know Crazy Sam. So, so they're in the studio, and they just get into it, Dave and Chris. And, and uh, Sam is, is popping ridiculous shit. And it becomes pretty apparent that, that Dave and Chris are either going to kick the shit out of him or, or if he pulls anything out, shoot him. And uh, it's a Mexican standoff. With and, the lighties and ODB. And, and uh, my dumb ass is, is there. <laughs> and, and somehow, by the grace of God, cooler heads prevailed. And, and this is a testament to Chris. 
he always was cool and calm under pressure. Um, he, he later on helped me mediate a couple of things um, financially and, and other, otherwise. Um, he always was, was very cool and kind of picked his battles well. And he knew this was worthless. And he, he basically told those dudes, like, yo, don't even think about coming to fucking tunnel anymore. And, and go fuck yourself. Like, and, and I got them out of there. They left. And when he left, Dirty took an LL plaque off the wall and pissed on it. And was like, fuck old Dirty. And the girl who worked at Chunking started crying. <laughs> And, and I was just glad that Chris and Dave were gone because they would have definitely shot him. Um, allegedly. Allegedly. And, and, uh, and I remember actually, like, Dirty going like, yeah, and they ain't getting their fucking money back either. And uh, I'm glad Chris didn't hear that one. So, so the, another thing that Chris did was, I, me and my friends one time got in a, a fracas with, with a guy named Diddy uh, in a club. And, and there was a you, lot... You threw, the, the, the legend is you and Diddy squared up and threw hands, right? Allegedly. <laughs> so, well, let's just say he was no Chris Lighty. Um, so, 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 um... <laughs> bang, bang, bang. So, so th things escalated, and, and we had, like, probably, like, a football team of guys with us, and there was, like, three of them, so... Um, and Chris called me the next day and was like, what the fuck happened? And I told him what happened. He's like, yo, we got to straighten this one out. And he mediated and kind of him and Jessica Rosenblum uh, calmed the waters. And, and he also helped me out when I uh, had my deal at Def Jam and I hated Lior. He mediated my uh, getting out of my deal there and got me a severance and, and helped me a couple other times and things like that. He was really good at solving people's problems. And uh, I always, it's funny, I'm older than him, but when, when things got like too complicated for me and my bad temper to figure out, I would always call Chris and say, Chris, what do you think I should do here? And he always had good advice. See, I, I want to jump forward now because... He, he also could invent money for people. Like, he invented money for me several times. Like, I got this thing, do this, I'll get you this. It was, like, incredible that way. So this is the thing that, you know, I worked in the industry, you worked in the industry. We're in the industry, we're making money, and it's the best life you could ever expect at the time because we're listening to something has given us so much life and so much passion and so much energy and purpose, you know, but no matter how long you're in the industry, I want to jump to 1998. You know, Chris, you know, is at the top of the game. Like, Chris, you know, took Def Jam to a new level. Like, Violators is this vibrant, you know what I'm saying, is this vibrant brand, right? But like the music industry, like hip-hop, you know what I'm saying, there's always drama. Rob, let's play that. The DMX situation was really my fault. What right? happened? That's what All we right? keep hearing. Like, oh, man, that's the craziest shit. That's Dave Lighty, Chris Lighty's brother. The story he's about to tell is about a little misunderstanding that happened back in 1998 when Dave was working with Chris at Def Jam. Someone asked Dave for his opinion on a new DMX album. At that time, DMX was the biggest name in rap. They were like, what you think of it? And I was like, ah, he had hotter joints on his mixtape. You know, me personally, but I like it, you know, and I guess they thought that was a diss. Somebody in the room thought I was trying to diss and ran back and told DMX. That's how Dave tells the story. Eric Nix, who worked with Chris, heard another version. He heard that Dave said something a lot less flattering. DMX had a complex about be being called a crackhead. He had a serious complex back then about being called a, a, a drug addict. 
And because in certain instances, yeah. I'm not saying he's a crackhead, but sometimes DMX yeah. moves crack ish. Yeah. DMX got wind of what was said and all he heard was Lighty. So DMX is like, fuck this. I'm gonna fuck Lighty up. Problem was, he was after the wrong Lighty. He thought it was Chris Lighty who talked shit about him. Chris was in the office one day and DMX was in the office. DMX seen Chris and was like, yo. Chris turned around and DMX sneak punched Chris. Boom! By the photocopy machine. Broke his tooth. Knocked his tooth out. Clean out, right? All hell broke loose. X go give it to you. Fuck wait for you to get it on your own. X go deliver to you. Moguls, present day Reggie Yose here. Gonna hit pause on our live show just for a moment. Coming up after the break, the Lighty Brothers join us to talk through that DMX punch and what went down afterwards. Okay, back to the Mogul Live Show, where I'll be joined by Dave and Mike Lighty. Dave, if you could just slide down one thing. So, um, so Dave, what the fuck happened? <laughs> Man, I mean, pretty much it's just like, you know how I said, a lot of it was a misunderstanding, people hyping shit up. What you did you saying? say what? about I said, X? I said exactly what, like, come on now, let's be realistic. I was getting a check from Def Jam. Why would I call one of the hottest artists on the label a crackhead? Does that sound, does that make sense? And shout out to Eric Nix, I love him. But he was searching for a job at the time, so he's gonna say whatever he was gonna say. You know bung, what I'm bung, saying? Bung, 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 bung. So it, it, it's what it is. But like at, at the time, like I, I wouldn't diss X. Like, and we all hashed it out. I, I, that's my that's my that's my guy. You know what I'm saying? It was a misunderstanding, and whatever at the time, whatever, however he was involved with things. You know what I mean? It may have it may have had a cause for how he reacted, but it all got resolved. Now, I remember I was cross town. This is when I was an attorney in the industry. And I remember at a certain hour, my Skytel two-way Motorola Motorola pager started buzzing. And it was like, yo, DMX punched Chris Lighty. And he lost a tooth. And it was hot. Like that detention in New York City. He did not knock Chris's tooth out. His punch is not that heavy. He snuck. Chris, and then Chris, he literally snuck him. Turned, he said, hey, Chris. Chris turned around and he punched him in the face and then Chris fell and hit his tooth on the doorknob. That's what happened. So, <laughs> okay. The DMX did not knock his tooth out. So The doorknob did it. So what I'm hearing though, all that night, because this is before Twitter, this is before TMZ, it's like, yo, right. there's a clash right now. Is this the violators? It was it was about and it's Rough Riders. Like what happened that night? Oh man, I mean, it wasn't even a night. It was during the it was the afternoon. So when that happened, I was I wasn't even in the building at the time. I got the my sky my sky page was going on. It was crazy. I was like, what? And I was zooming down to the office. That by that time, my my youngest brother, who is off the chain, mind you already was ready to get at him and was standing in the front door and 
people have had no, death jam of, of, of death with jam the, with at 160 tech, with the tech with nine. the tech nine ready to get at them at 160 Varick, and they knew it. Industry, so they 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 snuck them out the back way through Chongqing down the, down the elevators. If y'all know how Def Jam was set up, Chongqing and 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 Def Jam were like on the same floor. So it was like you could walk through one way and get into Chongqing and all that and escape the building if you was trying to hide. So that's what happened. <laughs> then now, 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 as his brothers, I can imagine how y'all feel. But can y'all tell us? Can y'all walk us through that? And can you tell us how your brother feels? Because this is the original. Like he's a violator. He doesn't get violated. I mean, I mean, when it happened, I was pissed. Honestly, I was on the plane with uh, Noriega. We was uh, actually going down the runway on our way to London. Uh, we was heated. And we was on fire at the time. Noriega was the, one of the hottest rappers in New York right now. Right. So we, we had about 100 left rack dudes ready to do whatever. I'm glad, I'm glad it worked out perfect <laughs> because, dudes. you know, we, 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 we ain't with all of the bloodshed. But, you know, we had, we, we fed a lot of hoods, a lot of people that Work. moved on to feed other families and help other families. And they was just willing to do whatever necessary to make sure that the violators never get violated again. So how did this thing get resolved? Well. Oh, DMY, actually. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Uh, Rough Rider. It always takes the, the, the big dogs uh, to, you know, rationalize and let people know that, hey, look, it's going to be a couple of people that die before this beef is over. So it's better off squashing it because we're coming to your house, if not. Oh, and, and I love DMX. Yeah. I've seen DMX on the... Puff Daddy told he showed me mad love every time I see him. But DMX know I'm going all out for my brother. For sure. So 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 tell it yeah, we we tell it in the in the, in, the, in the story, but how did for the audience that may have not well listened to Mogo. It, 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 Can it we was, have a show was, of hands for people? It, show of hands for people who have not who have not listened to Mogo. Okay, you you should not be listening nah, to Mogul, <laughs> little girl. But like, let's walk us through that again. <laughs> uh, I mean, you okay? How initially it went down? I know the violators got a call, and then you know, Chris called DNY, and essentially, you know, we got vested up and went up to the went up to Rough Riders' office. It was just me and Chris, and then the violators eventually met us there. But like by that time, we already kind of like hashed it out and everything, but. It was, you know, it was a yeah, 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 and it was it was a rational conversation, and even and it was even all explained out. I even told DM, I said, oh, I, I said the shit, and we was in the bathroom, and I was like, yo, we could shoot a fair one, whatever. Wasn't that? And you was, you was ready for that? Yeah, I said it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna let my brother take an L because of something I said. Like, of course. So, but it was all hashed out, and then. At the end of the day, you know, it was the most expensive punch that they had thrown. In the industry. <laughs> Everybody got paid. Everybody got paid, you know. But, you know, I, it, there was uh, a couple of loose tongues in, in the, marketing, the marketing department that was just trying to cause problems. Yeah, at, uh, at the time, we problems. was on fire. At the time, yeah. my brother was on fire. Yeah, like, it, we, had, we had 160 Verick. It was all, all the top labels up in there at Def yeah. Jam at the time. But we was on fire. We saved. You know what I mean? Yeah. Y'all saved Def Jam countless times. We might have had the smallest section in the office, but it was so much money generating that small section right. that you couldn't ignore us. That's right. You know? you know, countless times throughout this narrative, we hear from so many people about how Chris has influenced them 
and just had them, you know, open their eyes to like possibilities that didn't exist to them. How was it growing up with Chris as your older brother? <laughs> that was the best shit ever. <laughs> like, yeah, Chris, you know, Chris, Chris is like a, like more of a father or older brother kind of because yeah. he, he's not going to be just with everything, you know? Yeah, yeah, so, that's true. <laughs> so it, it, it definitely kept us on our toes because, you know, he, was, he wasn't just with everything, you know? Yeah. He, he, he ain't want to waste no time. So, 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 so give us an example, like... Y'all are like eight and five or whatever the respective ages is. And what, what is Chris's influence on y'all that at that type, age? That age, we was just being kids. You know, he was, we was all being kids. And playing he was superheroes. Yeah, playing superheroes and all that. We grew, grew up heavy on comic books and, and sports and all that. So we did all that. So we played football, skelsies. Uh, uh, we, we did, you know, because we were so heavy into comic books, we, we, we would play a game called superheroes and each one of us picked three different players and like, you know, we'd act out the, the powers and shit. It was just great. Yeah, you know I, I ain't saying? gonna lie. And, and Chris used to come home and, you know, tell us about the stories yeah. of, of going down to the parties with the violators yeah, yeah. and everything. So we was kind of in tuned on to what was going on. We just probably didn't realize how big it was going to get, you yeah. know? Exactly. So eventually he influences your lives to the point that both of y'all make a career in the music industry. How did that happen and how did he influence you in the music <laughs> industry? Man, well, for, for me, um, man, after growing up high school, I was wilding, man. You know, I was... What, what I, you mean, wilding? There's, there's, was, there's different ways of wilding. I, I, you, you, you violent. I went to 81 days of school out of four years. I graduated though. I graduated. Security. Yeah. Check it out. No, no. Check it out though. We moved down. Eighty-one days out of four years. We, we, not well. I say three years. And three you graduated? Years. My I graduated. Dude? Nah. We moved down to Maryland, right? So, like, New York is so advanced than the other the other states. When I moved down to Maryland, I was way ahead of them. I was like, what the hell is this shit? Like, I'm good. They're teaching me stuff I already knew grades ago. So, I wouldn't go to school. And then, you know, I'd just go whenever there was tests, turn my horn. So in. you were bored? Yeah, I was bored. And then, you know, there was no, you know, there was no focus. I got into other stuff. And then eventually I went into the military. And the, I didn't tell nobody when I went into the military. I just went. And then, like, Chris was like, what the hell are you doing? Because do why, why is a lady <laughs> like, in the military? Why are you in the military? But it was just, I, I, at the time, I, I, was, I, I just needed that. You know what I'm saying? So, but it made sense. And then after I got out the military, Chris was like, yo, come on. And it really, it was Chris and Lior because I had, I was still like, <sighs> the military was a good thing and a bad thing for me because it opened the door to other things. So I was able to like what? be, uh, I was an entrepreneur. <laughs> and and I, I was able to get my hands wet with other things. And at the Say time, no I, I, after I got out the military, I moved down to Atlanta, and then, like, somehow my brother got wind of what I was doing, and then him and Leo called me, and I, I remember like my brother was talking, and then Leo just started cursing at me, like, <laughs> I was like, what the fuck, like. Who is this motherfucker? <laughs> like, Did you know Lior? Yeah, I'm, I knew Lior, but like, like not to talk to you like not that. Not to talk to me like that though. But it was like I was like, damn. And then they told me like, and I, at the time I was living in Atlanta, like I was 
doing what I was doing. And my brother was like, come to New York. And I got on the plane in New York and I never went back. And it changed your life. Yeah, word up. Mike, how did you get in the, in, in the industry? Well, uh, I'm not sure if anybody in here from Baltimore, but uh, yeah, I Greenmount and Lafayette. That's where I used to hustle at. Uh, Allegedly. Allegedly. I mean, this is is the 90s. They they come get me for that, you know. Please. Give me a go-to fund or something. Get me out. But uh, basically, I came up here to intern for my brother. Uh, Worked hard. Learned a lot of different aspects of the industry. Figured out what I wanted to do. But uh, when I thought I was staying, my brother was like, all right, time to go back to school. So uh, I had to break it down to him, like, yo, how you think I pay for my apartment? How you think I get clothes? You know what I mean? Like, I understand, you know, we call you every once in a while for something, but I'm out here doing me, you know? And I was like, you know, for what I'm doing, we, you know, they're giving people 25 years, you know? So he, he caught on and he was like, nah, I can't go down like that. You know, I, I remember Wu-Tang knocking on my door, buying something, and they didn't even know who they was knocking oh, on my door. You know what I'm saying? Crazy. So, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, I, 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 I definitely feel blessed that he, uh, he took, you know, my, even though he's my brother, that he took me in and showed me the ropes and showed me that it was a different way to make this money, you know, you know legally. You know, um, one, of the, one of the stories that stood out the most to me um, throughout this whole mogul process was how Chris was so committed to his family, you know, his mom, his brothers and sister, but most, most especially his kids, you know. And you hear specifically about his relationship with his eldest um, child, uh, Tiffany. And then even with the DMX story, you know, we heard this story where, you know, when his tooth was missing, like even before, you know, retribution or whatever, he was like, I can't go home and have my daughter see me like this. You know what I mean? Like that, that conviction of being such a, a, a positive role model, you know, to his kids. And then you hear these stories about, you know, as a young father, like he was focused on the business, but he had to, you know, and had, he had to do these sessions, but he was focused on being a father. So he would show up to the Jungle Brothers session or the De, uh, De La Soul or, or, or Trap Call Quest with Tiffany on his back or like as, as a child. So, you know, I want, I want to complete this story and I want to bring to the stage um, Chris Lighty's eldest child, his daughter, Tiffany Lighty. Rob. Oh, we got Deja too? And Deja Lighty. Deja Lighty. Tiffany Lighty. So, um, how was it growing up with Chris Lighty? We're going straight into it. Yeah, we're jumping into it. I mean, like, how, yeah. like, like, you hear all of us talk about, I'm hip-hop. I grew up hip-hop. Mm-hmm. But, like, you really grew up hip-hop. Do you remember any of those earlier sessions as a child or, like, maybe two, three, four years old? Like, you grew up in this. Yeah. Um, I mean, I was so, so young. But I have, like, flashes of, of memories of being in the car with Tribe, Fife grabbing on my feet, uh, me being in a sleep, asleep in a studio, uh, smelling a funny smell. <laughs> uh, not from my father, but you know, from the artists. 
Um, I'm trying to think of like my earliest memories. Oh, honestly, one of my, my earliest memories of being on set of a music video, because I went to a lot of music video uh, sets, was uh, for lounging, LOQJ in total. And that was, that was like in 95. Like, like you were like. I was like five. Wow. And, <laughs> yeah. and what's running through your mind? Is this normal to you? So that, that day I consider, because I, wor I work in production, I went to school for film. So I consider that day the day that I knew I wanted to be in production, um, which is crazy to say that as a five-year-old, obviously I'm not saying that as a five-year-old, but just thinking back, because I just remember that that's just my first memory of being on set and just seeing everyone hustling, bustling and, and running around and then me seeing a green screen. I remember that in particular, seeing the huge green screen and seeing Total standing up there and dancing in front of it. And I remember asking my father what that was and him telling me, and obviously I'm five or six, went over my head and just, you know, me looking around, but... Yeah, I have memories like that. I don't know, but you know, it's crazy. It was the norm for me. That's that's what I knew. And so, like for in first grade, my my show and tell when everyone was bringing in stuffed animals, and you know, my mine was a a, a VHS tape of me being on an episode of All That uh, on Nickelodeon. <laughs> like, as you know, my dad knew someone at Nickelodeon, and so, yeah, why not? So I was on an episode of that, so it's crazy. But, yeah, that was, that was my life, and I know that, yeah, I was really blessed. You know, um, as a child, your parents tell you things, like, like you just said, mm -hmm. and it goes over your head, mm -hmm. you know? But what are some of the things that, that you hear now that went over your head, like both of y'all, and you're like, mm -hmm. oh, mm -hmm. that's what he meant? Uh, for sure, for sure, um, friends, friends they come and go and to not be a follower and not um yeah just get caught up with with friends because you know when you're a kid and when you're young your friends are everything your friends are your world you know god forbid so-and-so is not talking to you or you're That's not hanging out with yes yeah, the end of the world you know and so um you know he would always say that and i would just be like dad you don't, I don't you don't know what you're talking about. Like, these are going to be my friends forever. Like, what do you say? I was and the so, complete opposite. You said you I was were the complete, complete opposite. He would tell yeah. me, and I was like, I know. <laughs> I, but I think it was more because now everyone tells me that I was a lot like him. Mm -hmm. I'm very hard-headed. I will run my mouth like, if you yes. approach me. But Yeah, Deja's a lot more outspoken. Yes. I, I mean, he one time called me and was like, I need to talk to you. Come pick me up took me out. I thought I was just going to eat lunch with him, just talk to him. He's like, you remember tweeting this on this day? And I was just like, oh. What and did it, you tweet? So I don't know. He just, I just oh, cursed I remember. Oh. What did she tweet? I can't curse on She Twitter. said the N-word on Twitter, which, you know. It's like 14, maybe 13. She, yeah. And it now I don't happy. curse on anything. I like, I'm, I'm afraid. Mm -hmm. Even though I'm 21 now, I'm still afraid. I won't. I won't curse on social media. You know, it's funny. You talk to grown men that, that, that worked with Lighty or clashed with Lighty, and Lighty was such this imposing figure. Like, can you talk about how we go from being this warm, loving dad to like, oh my God, like, I'm scared of that. Like, can we talk about that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, he would stick his finger in our ear, 
It's his favorite thing oh, to do, yeah. clean oh, our ear, pull, our nose, pull on like your nose. Like, oh, I was that. always leaning on him. I would always want to just hug him. I was, I was never really afraid of him or intimidated by him. I would always remember just walking behind him through New York, going from office to studio to meeting and just mm-hmm. trying to keep up with him and people knowing who he was on the street. And always. Now, yeah. We couldn't walk two blocks without like someone stopping him or... <laughs> And was, like, once again, was that normal to y'all? Yeah. Yeah, it was normal. It was just like, okay. When did y'all like, realize that wasn't normal? Like, most people don't live a life like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I tell yeah. my friends jokingly that I was Northwest before Northwest. Was <laughs> like, right. I used to be in MTV, apparently, in Versace <laughs> outfits. And I was telling people to take me here and take me there. And That's funny. It never really mm-hmm. fully sunk in. And most of the time when it did was when people would try to ask us for favors. Mm-hmm. I've been asked a lot of favors before. And mm-hmm. that was another thing of, with friends. When it comes up with friends, making sure that... People mm-hmm. are friends for you, with you for the right reasons. Mm-hmm. Now, Tiffany, you shared a story with us, and, and, and Rob, we got a drop for you. Um, this is when you got older, and you wanted to claim your independence, mm-hmm. and you wanted to hang out at night, mm-hmm. and your father would play this particular record right here. What did that mean to you whenever that record came on? <laughs> that I, I can't hear that song and not think of my dad's face and him like in his room telling me like this with a big smile on his face. This is why you have to come home at midnight. This is, he's like, is the freaks come out at night? Like, I don't know what to tell you, B. I mean, you, you need to be home because shit goes down after midnight. And- did you understand that or were you like, what the hell goes on after midnight? <laughs> No, I understood it, but, you know, I was in high school, and, um, and honestly, midnight, that's reasonable for someone in high school. Um, but I, I course, of course, wanted to push it to one or two, but, yeah, no, I knew. I was like, okay, I understand. I get it. And I was, I was home by midnight. <laughs> what <laughs> advice did your father give you with regard to dating boys? Or, like, how was he, like, with boys? Like, if a boy came to the house, did he feel... Welcome when he was like, ah, date's over. With me, I, um, I didn't really bring boys to the house. Honestly, Deja? I didn't really date. No? Deja was, I was, too young. was too young. Yeah, she was too young. I wasn't even thinking but um, I didn't really date in high school. I was actually focused in school and I ran track and fields and I would go home and, and be with the family. There was one time when I brought a guy over. We weren't even dating, but I knew he liked me. He liked me more than I liked him. But you liked him a little, little I liked bitty. him a little bit, yeah. Little bit. He definitely likes me more, and so, which I think how, that's how it should be, ladies. But um, I just remember him coming home, and coming to my house, I mean, and he had his hat on backwards. My dad opened the door, and he said, try again, and slammed the door in his face. <laughs> And then, like, yeah, it went from, yeah, him to walking in, you know, ready to walk in the door and say, hello, Chris, to then him, you know, taking it off to saying, hello, Mr. Lighty, you know. And so he came correct after that. So that's how it was. And then from then on, I was like, oh, I'm never bringing a guy over. So, <laughs> you know, you've had people that paid Lighty millions for his wisdom. 
um, out of all the gems that he dropped, like what do each of you remember the most? Like what, do you, what comes up the most at this juncture in your life? Like, damn, dad, like this, I hear dad saying this. For me, he always um, really emphasized me, one, being a woman, being black, and having, being, having those two qualities and saying that that is going against me with, you know, trying, get a, trying to get a job or things like that. And so he just always expressed to me how I had to work harder because... He was like, you can't give your 100%. He said, 100 isn't enough. You have to give 110%. You have to give 150%. Like, he said, you have to, you know, carry yourself a certain way. And he knew that I wanted to be in entertainment. And so he always said, you know, you have to come correct and, and just work hard. And so now, you know, being in the real world and, uh, you know, I graduated college in 2012, I, I fully understand everything that he told me. You're the same yeah. way to that. Yeah. Deja? For me, I mean, I was pretty young, maybe mm. just still in high school at the time. So I, it was more just staying focused. It was all about staying focused. And I feel like he was my motivation. I did well in school. In education. Yeah, especially. I did well in school because... I wanted to do well so my dad could see the A's on the report cards. Because mm -hmm. even if I would get one B, he'd be like, what's that B? What's that B doing there? You got stressed for a B? Yeah, but but it it helped me and I'm still the same way. I mean, my freshman mm -hmm. year of college, I had a 4.0. I mean, it was kind of a little down than that, but <laughs> <it's>, <laughs> so I started off pretty strong, but it was because he always told me, like, you need to be better than the next. You know, I have one, one last question for everybody, and I, and I want to definitely go down the line. Um, you know, I think we still take for granted um, Lighty's influence and how he's changed the game, the business, and pushed the culture so forward. Um, each of y'all, what wouldn't we have if it wasn't for Lighty, Chris Lighty? What, wouldn't what would not exist? I wouldn't exist? I mean, <laughs> that's a good one. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, I don't know. I'll let... I'll let Someone else go first. Man, what wouldn't exist? Part of this culture. We wouldn't be rocking here like we, we, we do. You know what I'm saying? Like, they said hip-hop wouldn't last. We number one right now. We rock the world. You feel me? We are hip-hop. Without my brother, that wouldn't be happening. He's part of that puzzle. He's part of that foundation. That's what I know. That's what y'all should know. Yeah, who, who, what artist here got a manager that can only book shows? That's because you ain't got Chris Lighty as your manager. You know, I, I look at the industry now and there's so many managers, you know, in the game, but they, they're not really making their artists real money, you know, like putting them to the biggest potential that they can make, you know, and that, that's what Chris used to do. He used to push his artists to the, to the heights, to, the, to, the, to they say they, they too tired. And you would see him in the studio at 6 a.m. with you and you'd be like, oh, nah, I ain't supposed to be tired. This dude gonna wake up in the morning and still answer the calls for me. So I, I think he just pushed that envelope manager-wise. Uh, 
to the point where I, I mean, I I'm not trying to diss no managers. Uh, let me let me get it first off. You know, I'm not. I don't want to diss any managers that exist right now. But what I'm saying is. It's, it's not in a lot of managers that, d- that took it to the next level, like Chris, like branding them with uh, different, uh, you know, companies and just showing you how you, he, you could get Coca-Cola to pay for your video. Or, uh, you know, uh, he, he call you up and tell you, oh, I got $100,000 for you to push uh, Sprite. You know, uh, you know it, it's just not going down like, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to say it's not going down like that. I'm just saying... It's 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 just a different different feel of a manager going on these days, and I I wish everybody the best. I I hope that they really copy the skeleton of what Chris was doing, and we really take keep continue to take, you know, hip hop to the next level. You know, um, where would I be without Chris? I have no idea. Scary. Baltimore, scary. <laughs> you know, it's very scary. Uh, you know, I feel blessed every day. Uh, he, he even motivated me to start my booking agency because, you know, when, when I was interning for Chris, you know, I didn't know how to ask for a raise, you know. I was getting paid $150 a week, but I was taking in so much knowledge, it was worth millions. So uh, we had a staff meeting and I asked Chris, hey, can I get a raise? In front of everybody. Oh. <laughs> He clowned me. He clowned me, clowned me, clowned me. I said, yo, I'm starting a booking agency. You know what he did? He turned around and gave me my first client, Noriega. Wow. I never looked back since, and uh, I don't even know where I would be without my brother. You know, so just hope that uh, everybody that knew him or, or heard of him or did their knowledge about him, if you didn't know him, you, it... Uh, helped you to take it to the next level. Right. You, you really know who this man was and all of the things he accomplished. Because there's so many things that you, you probably didn't even know that he did behind the scenes or how many people he put into place job-wise, you know, to continue to feed their families. So, you know, without my brother, you know, I, I think a lot of people would be jobless or really uh, searching out how they're going to provide for their families. And I still thank him to this day for that. You know? That's dope. What's up, yo, Dante? I mean, you, you, you've been in the game from day one. Like you, you and 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 Chris had the same legendary mentor, Leo Cohen. You've seen things, but you, from your personal and professional experience, what would we not have without Chris Lighty's influence? I think Chris was the first person to understand the relationship between hip hop and mass culture. Um, and, and I think about the Sprite ad campaign. So that was one of the first times when a major corporation used rap as their marketing tool, as their, their commercial, their ad campaign. And, and he plugged in all my bands. So it was, it was Grand Poobah, and it was Pete Rock and Seal Smooth, and it was Tribe, and it was Large Pro. And, and I mean, I thought that that was brilliant, the way he did that. You know, he bridged the gap between the corporate and the street, and I think he was the first guy to do that. And, and that changed the entire game. Um, and, and obviously used that blueprint with the vitamin water thing down the road. So, so he showed us where the real money was and that corporate America needed hip-hop as that cosign. And, and to me, that changed the entire game. I mean, that's one of the most important things ever. You know, you can't turn on TV and see 
any commercial without it being hip hop themed, right? We have we have you know hip hop movies. We have a whole genre. It's it's hip hop is at the center of culture, and he's one of the people responsible for that. Yo, it's crazy. I got a ten year old daughter, and she listen, We listen to the Disney Channel, on on, on Sirius XM, and it's all hip hop right now. Like it's so crazy to me. I mean, it's the dominant streaming music in the world. I mean, and, and Chris is one of the people who understood that it was the voice of, of youth in America, not just black youth, I think youth, period. And, and he sold that dream to, you know, to corporate America, and we all benefited greatly from it. I mean, he, he dropped a lot of gems, too. Like, he showed me a lot of stuff. Philosophically, he's one of the people who, who taught me that everyone can win. I can win and you can win, right? I don't have to take it all and you get nothing. And, and I think that that level of diplomacy is often missing in, in the game right now. You know, and, and I think that uh, it was somewhat diametrically opposed to the way that Lior did. He wanted to clean your whole house out, right? <laughs> where, where Chris was like, well, I'm going to eat, and you're going to eat, and this guy could eat too. We can all eat. And I think spreading that around, that was a, a, you know, a testament to his diplomacy and, and the fact that he really believed that we all deserve to win. And, and that was like a wonderful thing. I think it's a rule of thumb that we all need. The other thing was he was a great manager, and, and hip-hop is devoid of great managers for the most part. Um, and, and he was, you know, he's one of the first real managers to be involved in hip-hop. And now, of course, we have real managers. We have Live Nation involved and Rock Nation, blah, blah, blah. But that would not exist if not for Chris and showing people the professionalism that needed to be exhibited to be successful. You know, he could talk to the streets, and he could talk to Doug Morris. You know, he could do that. He could talk to the guys at Coca-Cola, and he could talk to Grand Poobah. And I think the Nobody fact Nobody could he, talk to Grand Poobah. Well, well, that's hard. <laughs> he, without, it, without a two-way, it's impossible, I think. But um, he was that guy. He bridged the gap between a lot of worlds. And, and I think that, you know, he laid the blueprint for a lot of people to, to earn a living, just like Mike said. I think a lot of people would not be eating if not for Chris. And, and people who don't even realize it. I think people aren't even cognizant of the fact that they have what they have. And, and what people don't know, we talk about... So I said, like, everyone can win. So he did the Drake Sprite ad. No one knows that. Drake is not his artist, right? But he was like, here's your first big check. I'm going to eat. You're going to eat. Like, you know, Sprite's going to be happy. Everyone eats. So that was an example of what he did. He, he had scope beyond just his personal backyard. He could say, I'm going to go to this guy and get him to do it for him because everyone liked Chris. So when he called... You know, everyone picked the phone up. The other thing about Chris was no matter where you were in your career, if he was your guy, he always picked the phone up for you. He always sat down with you. He always wanted to hear what you had going on. And he usually had a hustle for you. And, and he definitely came through for me a few times. And I, I really appreciated that fact that I always knew I had access to him no matter where I was or he was in his career. And, you know, I think that that is something that, that people don't really understand. I think his, his vision and his amount of loyalty were gems that I take away from the way to conduct myself. That's dope, man. Thank all of y'all for sharing, you know, your personal and professional experiences with Chris Lighty. I want to open up the floor to Q&A. But before we jump into Q&A, let's take one last look at Mogul and the life of Chris Lighty. Chris Lighty was born in the Bronx in 1968, a time when hip-hop didn't exist. In 1979, when the Sugar Hill Gang dropped Rapper's Delight, Chris was still in elementary school. got his real education when rap went on tour and New York acts like the Jungle Brothers threaded their way through towns and cities up and down the East Coast. 
Rap had started to spread across America, and Chris was along for the ride. When rap went global, so did Chris Lighty. His artists toured the world and sold out stadiums everywhere. When Bling made it into the dictionary, when America elected a president who dusted off his shoulder and didn't hold back his love for Jay-Z, Chris was getting equity for his artists and making black millionaires. I wonder if he ever imagined that hip-hop would take him so far. If he was ever at one of those early park jams with weed in the air and bass in his chest and he stopped to think, this thing, this stew of bass and beats and rhythm and poetry, this will take me on an incredible journey. And I wonder if he ever said to himself, this thing called hip-hop is going to change my life. Wow. Wow. I, I never saw that either, so. Um, let's open up the floor to um, questions. Um, is, Matt, you walking around with the microphone? All right. That's, that's Matt Nelson, the producer of uh, Mogul. And, and tonight he's Oprah. Um, Reggie, I have a question for you. Um, which artist did you work on with Chris? And what was it like, lawyer to manager, working with him? Huh. Um, we didn't have the best relationship, and you hear the stories about it today. Uh, but Noriega, you know, I did the CNN deal, and it wasn't one of the best deals I ever did. Um, but, you know, whenever a client of mine um, said to me, because at the time in the 90s, you had a lot of credible, and I'm not taking anything away from credible managers that exist today, but the 90s was just a different time. But whenever you heard someone say, um, Chris Lighty wants to manage me, you knew that they were going to go in a different direction. You, were gonna, you knew that that would change the trajectory of their lives. Um, I had this one particular client uh, by the name of Shine, and um, Lighty wanted to sign Shine to his record company, to, 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 I think to Def Jam, right? Violated Def Jam. And it was this amazing bidding war between Diddy and Lighty. And when you talk about, you know, those two cats, like, like Light, Lighty was a force of nature. Diddy is a force of nature. And when you see them pull out the stops to lock in on an artist, you just have to sit back. You, 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 don't, you, you don't know how it's going to end. Oh, in that particular situation, Diddy got shined, but it was, it was like you saw that you were, like, I had nothing to say because they were on such a next level. And the only thing I could do as an attorney is, like, wherever you end up, you're okay. There's, there's a check for all of you. We're, we're all going to eat, you know? But it was just amazing. And, and, and another thing about Lighty um, from afar is that, you know, you could tell. I was never in Lighty's inner circle, but it was like, damn, what, you know, what do I have to do? How far, how far up? How much more do I have to step up to, to really be recognized, to be, you know, in Lighty's circle? You know, so he was just an amazing person. I hope I answered your question. Thank you. Next question. Hey, uh, um, so my name is Mel from Chicago. So two, two 
quick questions. One for downtown the end. I'm just gonna just say it. As a white guy in the culture of hip hop, how white? you present? Damn, as I gotta a, go tell my mom. Hold on, let me let me rephrase. As a white presenting man, right? And we talking about culture. How did you navigate, right? To like the conversation a lot of like if it's we're doing it for the culture, but we, a white person within the culture. How did you kind of navigate that? And what were your experience and what the feedback? I, I, I never is? really thought about it. Well, let me let me accentuate that question. You dealt with some of the most progressively militant black artists. Exactly. As well. yeah. We're talking about Lord Jamar and Brand Nubian and, and, and Tribe. Very black. Yeah, answer like, that question. You were with I mean, very it's, black, it, black groups? It's never really, uh, like, it never really came up. I don't know. It's not really a thing to me. I, I never really acknowledged it and I never felt that it held me back or, you know, maybe I got a little more scrutiny, but I think my actions just showed who I am. It's never really an issue. You know, I mean, I was in the trenches a long time. I, I earned my bones a long time ago, and I think people knew that. So, yeah, you know, I don't think it really is an issue for Lee or, or several other people. Stretch Armstrong. I think that's only an issue if you make it an issue. Cool. You know, and I don't, I don't make it an issue, so. Cool. And then um, the last part of the question, like listening to the podcast, and Reggie, I think you did a really good job that we don't talk about a lot, is mental health within hip hop and the black community and a little bit more of like, if anyone like what we're doing to progress that conversation, I know that's a little bit of the elephant in the room, but I think that was really, really important. Um, like you guys did two different episodes about, you know, the domestic violence and also just mental health and what everyone does for their mental health and being in this industry. You know, um, you know, I was nowhere as, as, as successful as, as Chris Lighty, but at a certain point, you know, during my last five years in the industry, I just felt this heaviness. I felt this darkness. I felt like no matter how hard I tried to motiv motivate myself to get to the office or how, how big the last check was, it wasn't enough. And at a certain point, I remember talking to my, my peers, like kind of like sheepishly because, you know, in the industry, and we could all attest to that, in the industry, we can't share our weaknesses, right? Es especially, specifically, as black men, you know what I mean? So I remember going to my peers and saying, yo, I just need a vacation. And they're like, what the fuck are you talking about? You making money, like, yo, we gotta go harder. You know, and, and it wasn't until years later after I just shut down and left the industry that I realized that I might've been suffering from depression, you know what I mean? But when you're in the industry, it's so hard to talk to people. Or even if you need a career change, it's so hard to get out. So I think, you know, we're in a new age, man, where, you know, we all, I think as Americans as a whole, we all suffer from some form of PTSD because this is a stressful motherfucking Hell nation. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I think we all need therapy. But I think also we all have to be brave and self-aware and compassionate enough to our peers to be like, yo, are you all right? It's not just how you look physically. It's like, what's going on here? Because this is all we got. You know what I mean? And it's, 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 way, it's way late in the day to start addressing you know, mental health in the black community. Right. And, you know, I want to add add on to that. Like, the the whole process of everything with my, with my brother's story, there's still a lot that a lot, a lot of people don't know that that hasn't been told. And I feel that, you know, your mental health is a is is a is an important thing. And then part of that process is also who you you you're with that is supposed to be able to help maintain that mental health for you based off of 
your relationship with that person. So, you know, that's a, a, a big part of it too that plays into factors that, 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 that go into this story. But it's like, you gotta, you gotta weigh every option. And, you know, I, I leave that to, and I know some people may think I'm in denial or whatever. I, I, I personally don't think that my brother did kill himself or anything th to that effect because there's so much that isn't, hasn't been told. And, it, you know, we, we have plans to, to, to tell things eventually based off of, you know, information that I've dealt with doing with my brother and how he was moving forward. But, you know, mental health is very important in our community. We have to definitely take heed of it and, and you know, watch the people around you, make sure that they're, they're straight, that they're in a, a, a good standing and relationship and, and way of life because things do happen, unfortunately, you know? And it is a, a factor that I think that, and especially in the hip hop community and the music community alone that we don't embrace, we don't talk about. And we definitely do have to do that more. And you know, I, one one movement that I know that is going on, my, my, my people Shanti Das, she's she's definitely pushing. Das, shout out you know, to Shanti for yeah, what man, she's doing. that's that's huge, man. You know, the, the uh, silence the shame. You know, if you don't know about it, look into it. You know, we 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 should definitely, you know, take a stand for it. You know. I, I, are people, you know, black people alone, you know, we, we are, we're, we're afraid to show our weakness because we look, look we at it We can't afford as, to in a sense. Huh? We can't afford to, or we feel true, we can't afford, true, we can't afford true, to. True, 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 true to a certain degree, I think, but at the end of the day, you know, you gotta be strong enough to say, I don't care what that person thinks. I have to care about myself and know that I have to be in a, 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 a safe place, a good standing, and not have to go through any stress or, or nonsense that I don't have to, you know? And we gotta, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta talk about it more, definitely. We gotta, we gotta, you know, just not, we gotta silence the shame. There's enough, there's enough <laughs> down, we gotta do more living. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know? Next question. How many more questions, man? This is the this is the last Actually, one. Actually, there's one more person that that no no. This is the next then, to last one. Yeah, next to last one. <laughs> Sorry about that. Thank you for doing this event. I, I've been listening to podcasts forever, and this is a really standout podcast. Thank you. So I much. thought it was powerful storytelling, and I've always considered Chris one of the masterminds of hip hop on the business side. So I'm so happy, and I want to know what's next. Please tell me there's a biopic, a film of his life. I need to see something visual now. I think he's so important. You don't know nothing about that. <laughs> we need yes, more. We, we coming. We're okay, coming with great. one, definitely. Great. I know there's a whole bunch of people trying to do it and all that. I see y'all, hear y'all. Yeah, I know all about the people y'all been trying to reach out to because you know what? They call me. Yes. Okay, so that being said, yeah, we're coming with something. We're in the works. It's going to be hip hop. What At its best. <laughs> what I can tell you, though, is that uh, we just got green, uh, greenlit for season two of Mogul. So, I, I, we, we don't know what it's going to be about yet, but that, that's what we know. That's dope. That's dope. Yeah, thank you. And thanks to y'all for making that happen, really. Thanks to each and every one of y'all, because this wouldn't have happened 
We wouldn't be sitting here right now without any of y'all. So really thank y'all for this. Last question. Uh, good evening, Eric. Jack, uh, how's everything going? Dante Ross, Lighty family, how's everything? Thank you for everything tonight. A um, couple of things before we close out. I want to um, address the issue of mental health. I am an individual who have suffered with mental health for many years. I worked in the finance industry um, for almost 20 years, and it's something that you develop over the years. You know, and the thing about being showing weakness, you can't, in those industries, in the, in, in the circles that we run in, it's, you, you can't, sh it, the, we, they eat their own, you know what I'm saying? And it's, it's just like, you just don't want to show that. And when I saw what happened to your brother, um, it gave me the strength to come out and tell, talk to people and say, hey, look, I'm dealing with this right now. It's not, you know, you, you. I, I'm not weak for this. You know what? I'll take you outside, whip your ass, but I still, I'm going to cry about it afterwards. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, but, you know, at, at that time, Robin Williams, 2K, happened with him and stuff like that. So it gave, that gave me strength to just come out and get help. And you know what? Talk about it. It's not, look, would you kick somebody in the teeth, a stage four cancer victim? You know what I mean? You wouldn't do that to them because you can't see it. It's not physical. You know what I mean? It, it's not real. They're like, ah, you're weak. Oh, you're weak mind. It's not that, man. After a while, the pressure gets to you. And it's like, you know, what do you do next? What, I mean, you can't make everyone happy. You can't, you know, you're trying to make yourself, you got to make yourself happy. And, and that gave me the strength to just go out there and talk, you know what I mean? And I'm not afraid to talk about it. You know what? Everybody got issues. Everybody in here has got something That's on. Right. You know what I mean? If, yeah. Look, I'm stronger than them because I could, talk, I could sit here in public and talk about it. And last, I just want to ask, where do we see Chris's impact 20, 30 years from now? Where do we see it in hip hop? Where, where is this going down the road now? Where, where will we be? Will be me. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! And and I, I want to commend you on you know talking about the depression because I I'm not gonna even front like I went through crazy stage of depression and the best thing that I ever did was talk about it. I, when I, after I talked about it and told people yo I'm depressed I've been going through it man let me tell you. That was, it was like a thousand pounds just lifted off of my shoulders. That's the best thing you can do is talk about it. Don't bottle it up and just engage in stuff that you normally do. And to, you know, don't, don't try to be sheltered in. You gotta do the stuff that you would normally do in everyday life, including playing and, and engaging with your folks and, you know, you can't bottling it up and being sheltered in. You, you know, it's you're gonna keep hitting that brick wall. Talk about it. It's the best way. It's the only way. Thank you so much. Oh, sorry. I wanted to add one more thing because um, when I was six, I my mom actually passed away, and so my dad was very serious about. Um, mental health and me having a therapist and at six years old, seven years old, eight years old, 10, 11, 12, 13, like I had a therapist and he did as well. And even as an adult, he did. And so I just feel like towards those years, you know, from 2008 on, um, things did get harder and heavier for him and so many people relied on him that it was harder to show, you know, uh, you know, so he would say, I would, if Deja knows this, if, if we didn't call him, like, you know, I'm away at school, Deja's young, she's a kid, if we didn't call him for a certain amount of days, he would say, hey, remember me? So, you know, it's like the, you know, the, 
just stopping for a second and just asking someone, hey, how are you? You know, how are you doing? Because, you know, life is so fast and we're all busy and we're all caught up in our own lives. But sometimes you forget to just take a second and just ask someone how they are, even if you think that, you know, they're, you know, killing it or making money or doing, you know, X, Y, and Z. You know, at the end of the day, when you go home and if your foundation and home life isn't right, then everything else doesn't even matter. So there, there's so much and so many factors and yeah, but I, I just wanted to say that my dad was, um, he did always, I can't even get the words out right now. My mind is like, bleh, bleh, he was bleh, very bleh. proactive. Yes, he was very proactive about um, me having a therapist and, and him having a therapist. But yeah, of course I wish he would have, you know, said a lot more, but. But um, th thank you for, for saying all that, and I hope that uh, it happens for other people as well, and that we have this conversation more in general and in hip hop and in the black community and in every community, because it's crazy how high uh, you know, suicide rate is and just how common depression is. You know, it's a common thing. A lot of people are on antidepressants. It's okay. It's, you know, it's not like you're a crazy person. And so I hope that more people realize that and that um, more people go to therapy. Thank you so much. Yeah. Um, I want y'all to give a round of applause to our amazing panelists, Dante Ross, Mike Lighty, Dave Lighty, Deja Lighty, and Tiffany Lighty. We're about to turn up with DJ Benjamin on the wheels of steels, but first and foremost, I want to give, you know, the obligatory thanks and the credits. You know, shout out once again to uh, Mogul's uh, producer, Matt Nelson. <laughs> Haley Shaw, Lynn Levy, Caitlin Kenny, Chris Morrow, LSN. Meg Driscoll, Eric Eddings, Peter Breslin, Rob Zipko, who's doing the sound today, A. King, and the legendary Jonathan Mena. Want to definitely give a shout out to the Highline. Yo, thank you. Y'all need to give yourselves a round of applause. This has been great. And thank you so much. Let's get busy, y'all. Your Mogul Live was recorded at the Highline Ballroom by Haley Shaw. The show was produced by Matthew Nelson and Rob Zipko. Rob's the sound guy. And, yo, Rob, thanks for everything. Um, you know, sound guy, man, you're responsible for everything, man. So, not really sorry for giving you a hard time, but you know the game is the game. Special thanks to Kevin Turner, Victoria Barner, and Austin Thompson for helping to make the event go smoothly. And biggest thanks of all to everyone who came out that night. If you really like what we're doing here, leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It's a great way to help others find out about the show. For more bonus content and information about the show, follow us on Twitter. The handle is at Mogul. And internets, be safe. Mm -hmm.